Welcome to the Bureau 42 X-Files Retrospective Podcast. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This week, we are discussing ICE. Introductions out of the way, let's get down to it. So, as I mentioned last time, this episode, ICE, marks a significant landmark as far as the production is concerned. I've talked before about how I didn't really get into the X-Files until Season 3. I was watching it occasionally at the tail end of Season 2. Season 3 is when it became appointment television, and I'll talk about the specific episodes that made that happen as we come to them. I discovered Season 1 on some VHS, a lot of it on DVD, or in the syndicated reruns, going back through it in order. Episode 8 is the first time watching it through from the pilot on that it really felt like X-Files had started to grow into the show that I knew it was going to become. There's a few reasons for that. One, this episode is again co-written by Morgan and Wong. The episodes they've done up to this point were Squeeze and Shadows, Squeeze being very notable as far as I'm concerned in terms of the overall quality. Another huge part of the reason that this became what it became is it was directed by David Nutter. This is the first of 15 episodes of The X-Files that are going to be directed by David Nutter, and it's part of what really established his career in the way he's known today. Up to this point, he'd had definite experience... He did a couple episodes of The Commish. He had directed 21 episodes of the live-action Superboy series from the late 80s, early 90s, starting with the season one finale. His resume goes back as a director to 21 Jump Street and Ceasefire before that. But this is where he really started to find his own. In The X-Files, a lot of his early episodes are the ones that shape what the show will become, and he's really starting to guide the show. And that is what he's since become known for. David Nutter is a director you can count on to help speed a series through its growing pains. A lot of series typically take a while to find their footing. They start with some idea of where they're going to be, film the pilot in the first few episodes like that. As they're together, they can kind of feel what's working, kind of feel what needs more work, what needs to change, and the show will eventually stabilize and become the type of series it's going to become. David Nutter is known for really speeding that along. He's had an excellent career setting up series, especially directing pilot episodes. Coming off of The X-Files, he directed the pilot first for Mantis. Not that it was a great show, but it was pretty consistent, as with a lot of them. He also directed the pilot episodes of Space Above and Beyond, of Millennium, of Roswell, of Dark Angel, of Smallville, of Supernatural, Dr. Vegas, Traveler, Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles, The Mentalist. He's got a huge history of directing pilot episodes. Uh, he also directed the pilot episode of Arrow, which launched in fall of 2012, a couple days before I recorded this, actually. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. But he is a able to find what that show should be and guide it on its way. So some of those pilot episodes, Smallville and Supernatural in particular, have been very strong pilot episodes. And we're seeing some of that here when he's really starting to put the show on its footing. Two other key elements of this show are the cinematographer, notably John S. Bartley, who was the primary cinematographer in the X-Files right through its Canadian years, and Stephen Mark, who is the editor on the X-Files. He edited Fight the Future, which we'll talk about later. He also edited 20 24 episodes of The X-Files during its run. So these are guys who are getting their groove together, and David Nutter was able to pull this production team in and really make it move. Part of the reason that he was able to do that is because this is a very tight script. Now, some of that is because there's quite a few homages to The Thing from Another World or John Carpenter's Thing, both versions, whichever interpretation you like, but it is a very packed story, and it's a very confined space. So we'll get into that a little bit more as we go through things. The basic premise of this one is a little bit different than the rest. Now, for the most part, by the time we're done the teaser, we've got a pretty good idea for what's going on. Of the seven episodes so 
far, we have a pretty clear picture of what the thread is in essentially 7 for 7. There's a couple that are a little bit vague, but you've got a pretty strong idea where they're going. In this one, it's not very clear at all what's going on. We start off in an Alaskan scientific outpost. Going through it, we see dead people. Our camera pans over their corpses. Very dark facility. There is a dog running around. And eventually we see a man who's bleeding, he's cut, he's beaten, and he sits down and starts making a video log. And he's not making a lot of sense. He's saying, we are not who we are. And he repeats that a couple of times, saying it ends here, then he gets attacked by another man. And this is a pretty drag-out, knockdown fight, especially given the amount of expensive equipment that's in this room. I strongly suspect that this was one of the last scenes filmed, specifically so that they could trash the set a bit and not really worry about it. So I believe that this one and the one where they are later discovered were probably two of the last ones filmed on this particular set. As they're fighting and they're beating each other, and you can tell these guys are really pounding the snot out of each other, they pull guns on each other, and they pause, and they look each other in the eye, one of them lowers his gun first, they point their guns at themselves, and it's a double suicide. This is the teaser we get leading into the credits. We come back, we find Mulder and Scully are doing a briefing again. This time it's not in Mulder's office. It actually looks more like a classroom. A couple computers in the corner, books and shelves, and chalkboard on one side. It could quite possibly be at the university that these people were reporting to. And one of the neat little effects on this one, when they're going through that last transmission where the man was saying we are not who we are, there's a screen date and time. The date is November 5th, 1993. The time is the evening. This episode originally aired on November 5th, 1993. So it was set up as though this double suicide was happening in the moment that viewers were watching this episode, which was a neat little touch. And depending on your time zone, it could very well even be in the minute that it was being viewed, which meant this episode was set just slightly in the future. As Mulder says, all I know is this transmission came in, the camera's cut off just as the fight started, so they don't really know what was going on. All they know is a deep core ice drilling process project, and that, as Mulder puts it, obviously they think Mulder and Scully are either brilliant or expendable since they pulled the assignment. From here we cut to Doolittle Airfield in Nome, Alaska, and here's where the supporting cast really starts to gel. There are basically seven guest stars in this episode. We've already met three. There's the two that have that knockdown dragout fight. Now, I don't recognize their names, but you pull them up on IMDb, you find that these guys appear to be primarily stunt people who are just cast in the small parts, which could also be why they were chosen for this fight. They could let loose a little bit more and make it much more convincing. Another guest spot is the dog. In real life, this dog is the father of David Duchovny's dog, Blue. The other four guest stars are the ones that we meet at this airfield. The first one we meet is Steve Hinter. He's playing the character Dr. Denny Murphy. He's listening to a Walkman with three plays of old football games. Most people would know him on site as the guy who played Kenny Banya on Seinfeld in a series of guest appearances. The next guest star we meet is Felicity Huffman as Dr. Nancy De Silva. She's got to be best known for her run on Desperate Housewives. She was Lynette Scavo on that series for every episode of the eight-year run. The other guest I meet immediately is Xander Berkeley as Dr. Hodge. He's been in a number of roles before and after this. He was in Gattaca and Air Force One later. Prior to this point, his most prominent role was probably as the foster parent in Terminator 2. And the last prominent guest star is Jeff Kober as the pilot bear. Lately, he's been seen on Sons of Anarchy. He's done guest spots on all CSIs, on Supernatural, on Dr. Vegas, on Numbers, on Reaper, on Criminal Mind, NYPD Blue, on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, on Star Trek Enterprise, on Star Trek Voyager. His only regular rule seems to have been on Kindred the Embraced, which only lasted eight episodes, but he's got a long, long list of guest starring roles. This is one of the guys that you probably recognize, but most of us don't know him by name. This is the team of actors we have, and it's critical, because basically we're going to be spending the entire episode in a couple of small bunkers in the middle of Alaska. Now, when we meet these characters... 
Senator Berkeley's character, Hodge, demands to see ID from everyone to make sure that we are who we say we are, which seems to be a throwback to the way he's interpreting the video. Now, Hodge and De Silva here are assuming that as FBI agents, Mulder and Scully have a lot more information about this than the others do, even though they insist that's not the case. So as everyone's pulling out their ID, we get, again, a good touch of Mulder's sarcasm as he's the one that checks Scully's ID and says, oh yeah, it's you. When Bear, the pilot, shows up and Hodge demands to see some credentials. The only credentials Bear offers is the fact that he's the only pilot who's willing to fly them up there and that the options are either fly with him or walk. They do arrive, they find the bodies, they find the place trashed. There's a lot of nice touches in terms of the research here. Even little things. They're in a very dark facility. They don't have the power yet. That's something that Bear is going to work on immediately. Getting the power up, even though he's just the pilot, he's willing to help just to speed things up and get back as soon as possible. When they start documenting the double suicide, Scully does warn them when she's about to use the camera flash, which, again, it's a nice touch. If you think about it, it's one of the things that I would have completely missed, but they got it. If you're in a dark facility and someone starts using a flash bulb, it's going to throw you off. So she just throws out that nice little warning. As they're going through, they find the dog. The dog that had seemed peaceful and gentle in the teaser attacks Mulder on sight. Mulder calls out, Bear comes to help him, and the dog also bites Bear, breaking his skin. When they restrain the dog, they not only find black nodules on his skin, but they see something moving under his skin around the neck area. So there's some kind of organism or a parasite within him. Now, meanwhile, Bear is alone in the bathroom as he's doing his own medication because he and Hodge got off on the wrong foot. He's not going to let Hodge touch him. While he's there, he finds the same black nodules they had on the dog under his armpits. But he keeps us quiet. He's now pushing to get back. But Muller's the one saying the voice of reason. No, there's any chance we've been infected. We cannot risk bringing it back. We've got to have a contagion. We've got to have quarantine. So they all agree. Yep, they're going to just check Bear out. If he's clean, after the dog broke his skin, they'll all fly back and just send out the main teams to come investigate the murder. But Bear gets pretty aggressive, fights back, and in the fight, they see something moving in his neck as well. Hodge gets in there with a scalpel, operates immediately, pulls the worm out. Mulder runs in the next room to grab the radio, call for the retrieval and the quarantine procedures. They're told, nope, storm's moved in faster than expected. You're stuck there for two or three days. When he comes back to find out if Bear's well enough to fly, he finds out that Bear's dead. So these worms will kill you if they're just forcibly extracted. They start going through the other corpses. They all have the worms. Those worms stay in the hypothalamus, which is tied to aggression-inducing hormones. So think, well, maybe the worms feed off these and they make someone aggressive, possibly killing others, but giving that worm what they feed on. Uh, we also know that these worms feed on a lot of ammonium hydroxide. And they've also discovered the glacier that they're drilling in this ice seems to be much deeper than anyone expected. It's actually in a crater. So Mulder and Scully end up isolated for a while and they're having a debate about whether or not they should kill this. Scully's saying, kill it all, destroy it immediately. That's the best way to contain it. Mulder's saying, this is ammonia-based life form in sub-zero temperatures. It has survived for hundreds of thousands of years. This is most likely extraterrestrial in origin. He wants to find a way to safely contain it for further study. And they get into a pretty heated argument where they know aggression is one of the symptoms of these things. So the five survivors end up agreeing to check out each other and make sure that there's no signs of infection. Now, in another Seinfeld connection, when they're doing these examinations of each other, just to make sure that everyone is clean and they can go to sleep easily, there's the only moment where Hodge ever laughs you know, of humor in the episode. They split up the guys are in one room examining each other, the girls are in the other, just as they're starting. Mulder says, before we get started, I'd like to remind you all we are in the Arctic. And this gets a laugh out of, I'm not sure if it's getting it out of Hodge or getting it out of Xander Berkeley. Because Hodge up to this point has kept a straight face. It strikes me that this may have actually been an ad lib on the part of David Duchovny, just for the sake of this moment. What I find interesting, as I mentioned, this episode aired on November 5th, 1993, the episode of Seinfeld called The Hamptons, that based an episode around a largely similar joke, didn't air until May 12th, 1993. 
1994. So the X-Files actually beat Seinfeld to that joke by about six months. And again, I'm not sure if it was the X-Files on the whole or if that was something David Duchovny came up with or they just decided to keep. At any rate, none of them have any spots to go in to pack it in for the night, but Mulder reminds them the spots on the dog disappeared not long after it was dead. What we have next is one of the best edited and best scripted and just shot sequences of the episode. We've got a couple minutes that are completely free of dialogue. The five characters are going off to five different bedrooms and dealing with the fact that there could very well be a killer in the next room. Any of them could be infected. Their lives are in serious danger in five different ways. Scully looks around and barricades her door. She's dragging furniture on a block the door. Uh, we cut from there to Dr. Denny Murphy. He's the geologist played by Steve Hinter, who was the guest star in Seinfeld. He's got his Walkman on and he's just listening to football games over and over and over. His favorite plays by his favorite team to try and calm himself down. Hodge is just going totally clinical and he's making notes about points where all the other characters may have been infected by whatever this is. Nancy De Silva, played by Felicity Huffman, is just lying in bed crying. And Mulder is trying to get to sleep, but he's got his gun nearby. He's the last one we see. It fades to black. Cuts back to Mulder waking up when he hears a sound, and when he goes out to investigate, he notices the geologist's room is empty. There's just the Walkman on the unmade bed. He goes back into the research labs, sees blood coming out of the freezer, finds the geologist inside. The other three find him right next to the geologist's body. So a lot of them jump to the conclusion, which is quite understandable, that Mulder killed this guy. Now, as the viewers, we know he didn't, but the characters don't. And this leads to a lot of tension when they're saying, okay, we'll turn around, let us examine you, and Mulder's not turning his back on anyone. So it ends up with a massive argument. Mulder ends up turning his gun on Hodge, because Hodge was coming at Mulder with a weapon. Scully pulls her gun on Mulder. They end up locking him up, and he says, I'll be safer in here than you are out there. Again, we're really ramping up the tension on the episode. This one moves. It is very tightly written, very tightly edited. There's almost no downtime. So we cut from here back to the search for the cure as they're studying these things. Felicity Huffman's and Xander Berkeley's characters, Hodge and De Silva, are working together. De Silva points out that she's not Hodge's assistant. They're all here with different areas of specialization, and she's screwed up. She's put in infected blood with already infected blood thrown off the current trial. When Scully checks out what's going on under the microscope, she sees that these larvae are killing each other. This gives them the cure. She tests it with the worms that they have in the vials. And this time we get a good long look at these worms, which is a little bit unfortunate. The worms in the vials are CGI, and it's pretty limited CGI that's available in 1993 on this budget. We can tell there's only so many points where the models can turn. There's some fairly sharp ridges where these worms aren't turning smoothly, but there's a few points that are pivoting more like they have joints and bones than they are like worms. The surface textures are off. They didn't have the budget or the technology available to do what they really needed it to do. In any event, they've got two live worms, and they have a working theory that you introduce one live worm to an infected host, the worms will fight each other to the death. They try it on the dog, and it works. So they're going to go do it to Mulder. Scully asks for time to see him alone. She goes in, and they talk, and they realize, you know, this was just tension. He allows her to examine him. She doesn't find any side in the worm. She's ready to relax, turns around, and we see Mulder reach out and grab her quite suddenly, which gives a good jolt to the audience, only to realize that, yeah, he's just doing it to check her out now as well. They're checking the backs of the necks to see if they can see this moving worm. They come out. Scully says, Mulder's clear. It's got to be one of you two. Hodge says, okay, we'll go back to the lab. I'll check Mulder out. If I'm satisfied, then Mulder checks the two of us out. And they position themselves. So Nancy De Silva, played by Felicity Huffman, manages to get Scully trapped back in that same isolated room that Mulder was that locks from the outside, while Hodge tries to 
to subdue Mulder so they could put the worm in him. During that fight, Hodge sees a worm move under the skin of Nancy De Silva and realizes it's actually her. So he lets Mulder go there, able to fight out. Nancy takes off. Mulder lets Scully free, tells her it's De Silva, while Hodge goes for the worm that De Silva had and she dropped. They subdue her, manage to infect her with the second worm, and that's enough to buy them time by the time the evac team arrives. She seems to be on the mend. They're free to go. Mulder wants to go back and check the place out. When Hodge says, well, didn't you know? They torched the place 45 minutes after we left. They're gone. The closing dialogue is, and Mulder says, it's still there, Scully. 200,000 years down, under the ice. And there's this pause. Scully thinks about it and just says, leave it there, and walks away. Now, this, I felt, was one of the strongest episodes of the season. Looks like the IMDb users agree with me. This one has a score of 8.8 out of 10 on the IMDb, making it the second highest rated episode of the season. As I mentioned, this is the one where it really starts to come together, and we get a strong feeling that, yes, this is the show that it's going to be, and we know what our series is going to become. Unfortunately, we lose a bit of that momentum. The next episode that we have is Space, and we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Thanks again for joining us. Intro and outro music is Outside Poolside by Last Will, created under the Creative Commons license. The rest of this podcast, copyright Bureau 42, 2013.